0: Our guest today is Ramsey Woodcock, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky. We'll be discussing his paper, The Market as a Learning Algorithm, Consequences for Regulation and Antitrust. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for today's episode. Ramsey, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I wonder if we could set the stage a little bit by talking about the skepticism on the part of the Chicago school when it comes to antitrust. Historically, how did it emerge? What impact has it had, and uh, has it been a skepticism that's limited to antitrust or has it carried over to other areas of economic regulation?
1: So my I've came to this paper, and particularly to the remarks in it about Chicago school skepticism, primarily through an antitrust lens, and primarily through a reading of the conference book that was produced based on a 1974 conference that's widely known in antitrust as the Arley House Conference, in which prominent Chicago school scholars sort of attacked what was then the antitrust establishment and used skeptical arguments very, very successfully, put the establishment on its heels and, and really changed the course of antitrust law. So in the paper, I'm not trying to sort of make a broad claim about the entire Chicago school or even to define it in particular, but I am trying to sort of get at what I feel through the Arley House conference papers is a deep skepticism about antitrust and regulation more generally, and then try to figure out how that fits with what we've learned since 1974, and also how that skepticism fits into a broader understanding of the role of antitrust and regulation in the economy. So in Arleigh House, you had people like Harold Demsetz and Richard Posner and other prominent Chicago school members say, hey, look, we can give plausible accounts for why any currently existing antitrust theory could actually make consumers worse off. And so long as we can give these plausible accounts of why they might fail, we therefore should not proceed with antitrust. So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, uh, there's an argument that's developed by John McGee, but really actually Sam Peltzman, in a paper that came later, formulates it most coherently. make this argument that antitrust, Its obsession at the time with preventing concentration based on a purported relationship between concentration and profits could be wrong because Peltzman could come up with an alternative scenario, a plausible scenario in which uh, you might find a relationship between concentration and profits in markets, but that relationship would turn out to be not due to firms raising prices and colluding oligopolistically, but rather simply due to a cost differential between the firms. So what he posited was that there was what I call a kind of pygmy, there might be a pygmy innovator firm in every market. And that pygmy innovator would have lower costs than a big dominant firm, but it would have achieved lower costs based on some innovation that is not transferable. The manager is just really good. The manager is only able to do a great job with that firm. If you were to transfer the manager to the big firm, he wouldn't be able to do as good a job. There's some special sauce in the little firm. And as a result, you see a relationship between concentration and profits because you've got a big dominant firm and this little pygmy firm. So that's a concentrated market, but you've got high profits not because the big dominant firm is charging monopolistic prices, but because it has higher costs and the little firm is making all the profits because it has lower costs, so it can charge a price equal to the dominant firm's high costs right, and pocket the profit differential. But there's nothing antitrust couldn't do to eliminate those profits or pass them on to consumers because breaking up the big firm won't help. In fact, breaking it up might lead to even higher costs if that big firm is realizing whatever economies of scale it has. And at the same time, you can't transfer the secret sauce to the big firm, so you just can't do anything. So if this sounds like a highly unlikely scenario, it certainly sounds like that to me. But that's not what the Chicago School was after here. It wasn't trying to propose a plausible scenario about the way the world actually works. It wasn't trying to advance a new theory about how the world functions. It was trying simply to poke holes in this sort of establishment view that if you have a concentrated market, that must be because you've got a small number of large firms that are not competing on prices they should be. So the goal is only to come up with these marginally plausible counterexamples that would prevent the prevailing view from being completely credible. You know in the years since there's been another argument that whenever you see monopoly profits, whenever you see a firm earning really large profits, it must be because that firm needs those profits to invest in research and development and to innovate. Right? This has most prominently been argued in the pharma context, but it's rolled out all the time all across and I trust to justify monopoly power whenever we see it. And again, it's not really it's not an attempt to say that this is how the world actually works. I don't think anyone really thinks that in every every case of monopoly power, that money is going to be spent on research and development that will improve products. And so we shouldn't interfere, but it does have this like skeptical role where you've got this plausible counterexample that makes it impossible to say with 100% certainty that intervention is gonna work. And this comes out very strongly in Arley House. And also you see how it surprised the establishment that hadn't been used to fielding this kind of skeptical work thus far. So there's a, a wonderful uh, antitrust economist, Mike Shearer, who was the head of the Bureau of Economics at the Federal Trade Commission during the conference and was there at the conference. And you have these Chicago folks come with these skeptical arguments and he doesn't know how to respond, right? he showed up at the conference with this amazing paper about looking at minimum efficient scale for all, for all the major American industries and arguing that, well, we can break up firms in every major American industry because the minimum efficient scale is actually a lot lower than the actual scale, which means you can break the companies up and you won't lose on efficiency grounds. And he'd gone out and talked to engineers and he had this whole thing put together, this positive project. And he runs into this buzzsaw of skepticism saying, well, you know, maybe the, the secret sauce of these firms in here is in management. And so if you break them up, you're going to lose something that the engineers, even if the factories wouldn't be put below minimum efficient scale, you might lose this intangible management advantage and so on. And so he starts kind of stuttering that the conference volume has these dialogues from the conference and Shira starts sort of stuttering. And he says, well, look, you know, instead of defending what he has, his position, he says, well, you know, my role as an economist is to say, and I'm quoting, you know, look, society, if you want this kind of world, here is what it is going to cost, but I'm not willing to say do it. So you had on the one side, this extreme skepticism saying, don't do it. And on the other side, the defenders of what in the mid-20th century was a vigorous antitrust enforcement regime being unwilling to come out and say, no, do it. And that's the advantage of skepticism, because unless you can say with 100% certainty, yes, this is going to work, it's hard to come out and say, do it. And wonderful contrast in this conference volume is with Demsetz. In another exchange, you have an interlocutor say to him, well, Professor Demsetz, if you were a member of the House... Would you vote to repeal the seller Kefauver Act, which had interpreted the Supreme Court to protect small businesses at all costs? Demsetz says, yes, period. And then the interlocutor comes back and says, well, just to complete the record, I want to ask Professor Demsetz whether he would also repeal the Sherman Act. What is Demsett's reply? The answer is yes, <laughs> as it is currently being carried out, yes. I start with this as the beginning Idea in this paper, and I, I start to, to say, "Well, where does this radical skepticism take us?" I have a background in philosophy, and philosophers are well aware of the destructive power of skepticism because it basically ruined the field. You know, we call it solipsism, right? We call it Cartesian doubt. We call it being so skeptical that you're not willing to accept that the that reality exists. You're not willing to accept the reality of your senses, and ever since this sort of radical skepticism hit philosophy about 500 years ago, it's really struggled just to admit the existence of the world, much less to be able to say anything substantive about the world. You see you know, Immanuel Kant and the whole project of the history of philosophy in the West has been how do you recover from the fact that, yes, maybe your senses are false, right? And maybe, maybe the world doesn't exist, Uh, And you you don't really have any basis for saying that it does. Uh, Another way to think about the destructive power of skepticism is just to think about engineering and what would happen in engineering if sort of radical skepticism were accepted. We don't actually have any closed form solutions to the differential equations that describe the flow of air over the wings of airplanes. So we can't actually say with certainty that any airplane will actually take off we we use trial and error we we you know we blow air at these things right we now have computer simulators that simulate airflow but we don't actually have a, a, an absolutely certain way of predicting what's going to happen with air once it goes over the wing and so airplanes do crash right we lose lives but we also have planes that fly and a lot of us fly on them and i think overall you know we think that engineering with respect to airplanes has been a success right in spite of the fact that uh rationally, you know, one has every reason to be very skeptical that an airplane, once you get on it, is actually gonna take off and not deliver you into great trouble. So there's and, and it does go beyond just antitrust. I talked briefly about Coase, who, you know, was not at this early house conference. But I think there's been a failure on the part of economists and lawyers to understand just how radically skeptical this approach is. Because when they encountered Ronald Coase and the problem of social cost, you know, Coase had this, they interpreted him. As producing what was called the Coase theorem. The idea here was that Coase had said that it doesn't matter where you put the legal rule, whether the polluter has a duty not to pollute or not. It doesn't matter whether that exists because the parties will always bargain efficiently to the right allocation of resources. If the value of production associated with the pollution is greater than the harm to the neighbors, then the polluter will buy the neighbors out and pollution will take place. And that's socially beneficial because the benefits exceed the costs and so on. That's the whole Coase theorem. Many of your listeners, no doubt, are familiar with it. But that wasn't actually Coase's argument. If you read the problem of social costs, as, as many people have pointed out, that makes it sound like a positive project, right? It makes it sound like Coase was saying, well, look, all you know now we don't have to worry about legal rules cuz people are going to negotiate to the proper solutions and that's wonderful but that wasn't the argument the argument was you know we live in a world with transaction costs so people never do actually bargain to the official solution and the only way around it would be for a judge or government to allocate the legal rule in the efficient way so that you wouldn't have to bargain to the right result. So, for example, if the pollution is more beneficial than the harm it causes, you would give the polluter the right to pollute. And Coase says that's the only way to solve this problem because people can't bargain efficiently. However, if you read to the end of the article, he goes on, he says, however, how would government or a judge ever know what's better? No one is ever going to know what's better. So there's nothing we can do. His idea is not, well, we should come up with a bunch of rules and allocate them efficiently. It's throw our hands up in the air. There's nothing we can do. So regulators, it's a waste of time. It's just a waste of time. And this is very much a piece with the sort of coming up with these plausible counterarguments to action, which you see in Arlie House and which extended far more broadly throughout all of regulation.
0: 1974 at Arley House, a very momentous conference indeed. And as you mentioned, skepticism wasn't necessarily a positive agenda or a positive exercise, but had a perhaps counterfactual role. You draw analogies or connections to philosophy and engineering. I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about the connection that Chicago school skepticism sometimes might make with the idea of evolution, biological evolution, and how that has maybe framed or affected antitrust doctrine or policy since 1974. And are there any analytical reasons why we should be skeptical of that skepticism?
1: this conference and the skepticism in antitrust had an immense influence. I mean, it's really the inflection point in antitrust. In the mid-20th century, you had this very vigorous antitrust enforcement relative to today. You had the Justice Department the Federal Trade Commission regularly filing these huge monopolization cases against the biggest firms in America. Just in the 70s, right, the FTC filed a case against every major oil producer, for example. It went after the breakfast cereal industry. I mean, this was, it was a completely different environment. Environment. I mean, it was one in which antitrust was so active that the best and the brightest from the top law schools, they wanted to be antitrust lawyers. Right? You know, Richard Posner started out as an antitrust lawyer. Regularly, the deans of all the major law schools in the country were antitrust lawyers. You know, Derek Bach went on to be president of Harvard University, antitrust lawyer. Uh, so it was a completely different world from the world we're in today in which antitrust has been an afterthought really for the last 20 or 30 years. Maybe now it's, it'll come back. People are pressing for it, but we haven't really seen much in the way of results. But so, And this all changed because suddenly with the skepticism, everybody was walking around on tippy toes. You know, gosh, we have to be careful about trying to break up these big firms because actually we might destroy the golden goose. You know, we have to worry about error costs, right? Another part of Chicago school skepticism was to say, hey, look, if you break up a big firm, it's never coming back. Whereas if you let a monopoly persist... Will definitely face competition eventually as technology evolves. And so, if you get antitrust wrong and have too many monopolies, the market will take care of that eventually. But if you get it wrong in the sense of over enforcement and you kill the golden geese, they're never coming back, right? This was another part. So, antitrust completely changed. New cases stopped getting brought, and the whole field went into hibernation. So, is this a problem, right? I mean, maybe we should be skeptical. Maybe we just don't know enough about anything to proceed. What interests me about Chicago school skepticism is one area of government regulation that it didn't really touch is property law. right? So property law is a huge part of Chicago school thought. And there's a whole tradition in Chicago school of explaining how you have to have property rights because if you don't, people will steal what you produce. And so you won't have an incentive to produce. And so there'll be less production. And so we won't get economic growth and technological advance or anything. But this was a highly under-theorized area of the Chicago school tradition because Obviously, property, as many people have pointed out, is a form of government regulation, right? When we have government intervene to bolster property rights, we're doing something. So there coexists in the Chicago school mindset this sort of radical skepticism combined with this sort of denial and avoidance of the fact that Chicago schoolers are fundamentally economic liberals. And so they believe in basic property rights and freedom to do business and, and not have things taken away from you. And so I started to think a little bit about if we were to take the skepticism really seriously, where would it lead us? Can we go back further than just 200 years ago or to the heyday of economic liberalism when there wasn't any regulation and think about this interaction between Chicago's concern over property rights and theft? And so I decided to go way back uh, and start with the beginning of life on earth. And if you read a little bit in biology, in, in evolutionary history, you come across this phrase, the garden of the Ediacara, quite a bit. And so this is the age of life before the explosion of motile life, of sort of organisms running around and eating each other. And it was one in which, you know, you had sort of algae and so on generating energy from the sun, and you had filter feeders, these creatures that connected to the bottom of the sea and opened their mouths and filtered The water that came through to eat stuff, but you didn't have what we would understand to be kind of predators today in the sense of creatures running around trying to gobble each other up. And it's called the Garden of the Edicara because the idea is this is, right, this is before violence and predation and theft and theft came into life. That, That was the world. And then you have the Cambrian Explosion, which is the moment when life learned how to steal. When you had predators who, instead of trying to survive by transforming inanimate matter or light into energy... Realize that they could get by by eating others, by sort of living off the productive activities of those who had done the hard work of transforming the energy, uh, transforming inanimate matter into energy. And so if what radical skepticism gets us is to sort of a world before regulation, well, this is really the world, right? This is, and often you do find in Chicago arguments, particularly in the work of Hayek, this sort of idea that If we get rid of all government regulation, we end up back in this sort of natural evolutionary environment that's highly productive, right, that led to us, to human beings, into life. But when you actually go and look at this, you see that uh, you have some of the features that the Chicago school, when it's off unreflectively defending property rights, would agree are seriously problematic, that you've got a world in which creatures are stealing from each other. And so the story of the triumph of life is maybe not as comforting a one as it uh, first appears, right. I mean, what are we? you know we're human beings, we're highly successful predators, right? We have no way of transforming inanimate matter into energy directly, right? We're not productive. We're not pie expanders to use an economic phrase, we don't expand the pie. We, but the pie is expanded by the plants and the bacteria and so on that are transforming inanimate matter into animate matter and creating energy. We just live off that energy that they create. And so the story of evolution and competition in evolution is one of predation and redistribution right? Exactly the things that in their sort of less reflective moments, the Chicago schoolers in defending economic liberalism really abhor and argue against. And so from this perspective, you know, we start to see the Chicago school with its unreflective acceptance of property rights is actually, you know, really advancing a picture of regulation itself, right? One that takes us away from the real state of nature, the one in which, you know, there is no rule against theft and we don't have economic growth, and the one in which human beings lived in for the first 310,000 years of their existence when they were hunter-gatherers and before they would actually started organizing civilization and trading and recognizing property rights and some of the benefits that come from that and the incentives that Chicago School points to.
0: In your paper, you offer a different analogy than biological evolution for how we should understand antitrust regulation or economic regulation more broadly, and that is the analogy of the learning algorithm. Could you talk about that analogy? Uh, How might it work better as a way of thinking about antitrust as opposed to evolutionary biology? And if we were to adopt this frame, what would enforcers, courts, or policymakers do differently today?
1: I think it is fair to say, at least for the radical skeptics that I've encountered in Chicago school writings, that they're not worried about blowing up all government intervention because they think that in some sense, this sort of unregulated evolutionary state of nature is mostly good, mostly productive. They don't seem to have fully understood how the history of unregulated life is a story about predation and theft. And so I think it's fair to characterize them as having something like an evolutionary metaphor at their heart for the economy. And I think a much better metaphor than this idea that the sort of unregulated world naturally leads to greatness and productive activity, a much better metaphor is actually something that's in the news a lot these days. It's the machine learning algorithm. It's learning. And that is, we think about sort of life for civilization is being one in which you you know you've got creatures with minds and what do those minds do they like a machine learning algorithm they basically try to to apply a rule to data to their sense perceptions and then if it doesn't work they adjust the rule and they try again and if it doesn't work they adjust the rule and they try again and they try to through the process of trial and error they advance. They learn to organize themselves productively and get energy and all that. And so if we think about life as being like that, then basically life is the kind of a machine learner. It's a, a an agglomeration of machine learners, right? We think of the, all life as a whole or the environment as a whole is a group of creatures, all of which are learning in slightly different ways. We've got this sort of massive machine learner. That's basically what life is and also what economic activity is. It's you know, a bunch of Human beings learning about how to organize resources and make themselves better off, and so on. And if we think of it that way, we can think of property law, the rule against theft, that Chicago seems to assume is part of the state of nature, but really isn't. Is really is an additive. That rule against theft represents a kind of attempt on our part, on the part of humanity, to improve the learning algorithm that is life by channeling the learning process in a more productive direction because what predation meant I mean, what the cambrian explosion meant was that life learned how to get ahead not by increasing the pie but by taking from others by eating others as opposed to transforming inanimate matter into energy this prevented life from getting ahead and producing all of the technology that we as human beings used until 10,000 years ago or so, we started to recognize you know, as human beings just how important that rule is. So, for example, 10,000 years ago, we started raising livestock. We started domesticating plants and animals. And what domestication is, it's a kind of symbiosis, right? Instead of hunting you know, all the creatures on the plain until they're all dead. And some scholars think, for example, that mammoths you know, went extinct because of prehistoric human hunting. Instead of doing that, we conserve. You, you feed the livestock enough for them to Subsist and reproduce, and then you take from them, but not so much that they're run to extinction. And this is, you know, started ten thousand years ago, and then, you know, and that's basically recognizing the importance of not stealing, in some sense, of allowing for the other party to subsist, and that translated into civilization. In which it was recognized that if you, in some sense, domesticate human beings and get them working together and give them enough to to subsist, you actually end up with a bigger pie. And over time, you know, that was basically kind of early civilizations were these sort of centrally planned nightmares. You think about Old Kingdom Egypt in which human beings were being domesticated by the pharaoh, but ended up being way more productive than hunter-gatherers had ever been. And then over time, we got to the age of liberalism about 200 years ago, in which we kind of realized that to just have the king or their staff doing the learning while everybody else is just being directed around is not actually as good a approach to learning as having this sort of distributed learning where individuals are free enough to make their own economic decisions. We went from just realizing that not Stealing is important to realizing that also having this distributed learning along with not stealing is important. And that's basically the liberalism that Chicago defends. And these are all can be understood as a kind of tweaks or improvements in this meta learning algorithm that is life, channeling all the learning activity in productive directions. And so then the question posed by debates today is whether economic liberalism is it Can we get any better than it? Or, you know, is that it? We've, you know, we've created the perfect approach to learning. And I think once we look at it that way, the sort of seductiveness of Chicago school skepticism that, you know, hey, look, life did it without regulation. So let's get rid of regulation starts to look not right at all. Instead, it almost looks retrograde. We start to see this sort of idea that, well, property rights are the end of it, and there can be no further improvements to the algorithm, is basically missing the whole spirit of the project. I argue in my paper that antitrust can very much be understood as an extension of the basic spirit behind property rights. right? So this idea that we want to channel the learning away from redistributive activities, from theft, and towards productive activities. So property rights do that in the sense that if you're productive and you own what you produce, people can't take your stuff, so you have an incentive to produce more. But there are many situations in which you can take from others or you can degrade what others are producing in some sense without actually violating property laws as they're currently understood. And what does antitrust do? It deals with those situations in which property law can't actually preserve incentives. So to give an example, you know we in antitrust we prohibit tying. And tie, you know, this ties a product they monopolize to another product uh, that they sell so that buyers can't choose competitors' products in that sort of competitive market. You know, why do we do that? Well, because, you know, think about a monopolist of computers who wants to tie choice of computer mice together, right? Why do we prohibit that? Well, because consumers might want to be able to combine the computer with some mouse that's better that's produced by some other producer, but the tie prevents that. Now they have to buy the mouse that's sold by the computer monopolist. And so they end up with a product that they prefer less. In some sense, the overall result of this behavior is counterproductive. It leaves consumers with a smaller pie in furtherance of the desire of the monopolist to redistribute wealth to themselves by selling you the mice in addition to the computers. Well, that's really the same spirit that we have behind property law, right? Which is that we, you know, We want to prevent people from destroying the incentives to produce stuff in furtherance of redistributing wealth to themselves. We can further tweak the algorithm- and improve upon a regime of just property rights and otherwise say, fair by adding in antitrust laws, which prevent other counterproductive activities. So that's sort of the vision behind the
0: paper. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from the paper?
1: I think one is it's important for us to get beyond the seductiveness of Chicago school skepticism. Because there's a kind of smart alec quality to it where you, know, you come up with a plausible counter argument to some kind of a productive project and you, know, you feel that you know, you've know you won, right? You've scored an intellectual hit, but we need to get beyond that and beyond the notion that if we tear everything down, we still land in this kind of evolutionary safety net in which things will turn out okay and realize that actually everything that we think is positive about the modern world comes from application of regulation, starting with civilization and with this notion that we want to not just steal from the environment around us, we want to domesticate it, which means we want to interact symbiotically with it and going all the way up to rules against theft and even up to the antitrust laws. So the proper way to think about the background environment we we live in is that all of what we have in the modern world is due to the application of regulation to an otherwise unregulated learning process.
0: Our guest today has been Ramsey Woodcock, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky. We've discussed his paper, The Market as a Learning Algorithm, Consequences for Regulation and Antitrust, which I'll add a link to in the show notes for today's episode. Ramsey, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure to be on.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.